Scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 24. Afterwards, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David, seek you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord um, how the Lord gave you today into my hands in the cave. And someone told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. By my hands shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After dead, after a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said this, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have, you have declared this day how you have dealt with, well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let, let him go if a, um, away safe? So may the Lord reward with you, with good, for, for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall um, surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. And as we read it, as we come to it, we recognize that you do great things in our hearts through it. That it is living and active and that your spirit uh, takes your word and applies it to our hearts, Father. Opens our eyes to see you. So we pray that this morning, Father, that you would... Open our eyes to see you here this morning. Open our hearts and our ears to hear your voice and encounter you here this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For the, uh, for the past month, I've been uh, teaching a three-week intensive course here at uh, the university on uh, Introduction to Biblical Studies, and it's been breathtaking in the sense that we've had to go so fast. We've had to talk through the Bible in three sessions. So we get all the students together, and then we just rapidly run through the Bible to help them get a grasp of what the story the Bible is really telling. And it's been hard. It's been difficult. And I'm not sure my students would say it's been particularly fun. But I would say there is some benefit, at least for me personally, to sometimes going through the scriptures so rapidly. Because sometimes you get to see the bigger picture that the scriptures are telling. And what you see in the scriptures is that there are all sorts of layers of meaning 
to all the texts that we so often read day in and day out. The, the layers of meaning, there's, there's historical meaning to each one of them. There's meaning to each one of them in, in God's great story of redemption, but there's also meaning for you and I and our lives personally. And I think we're going to see that in the passage that we're going to look at here this morning. So let's look at this passage together. And like an onion, let's try to peel away some of its layers to see what it meant in that day, what it means in the, in the greater big story about what God's doing, and also in the story of our lives as well. And I hope in the process we'll see three significant things. The first thing I'd like us to see is, is, is what I say about this. It says, significant things happen in the wilderness. Significant things happen in the wilderness. If you've been with us for the past couple weeks, you've seen that we've been looking at uh, the life of David, the life of David as told to us in the, in the book of First and Second Samuel. And we've seen David at the very beginning of his story when he has come to by Samuel and anointed the new king of Israel. He was the unconventional choice. He was the youngest in his family. He was the most marginalized in his family. He was a shepherd boy. No one had ever dreamed that he would have been the king. But almost immediately, he rises in popularity. Because we see almost immediately an intense passion for God in David. A passion for God that made him fearlessly confront Goliath and destroy him. But we've also seen another side of David. We've seen a a tenderness to him in his tender, close relationship with Jonathan. But all the while we've, we've observed him and we've seen his life, we've waited for him to ascend the throne. We've waited for him to become the king that was promised to him. But chapter after chapter after chapter, we see that it just doesn't happen. See, there's a really popular misconception about Christianity that's out there in the world nowadays. And the popular, the popular misconception goes like this. It says that once you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, then your life is going to instantly go better. You're going to be granted untold wealth. You're going to have wonderful health in your life. And everything is going to go better because you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And many people are actually sold on Christianity with this very misconception. But if you actually look at the scriptures and the people who are in relationship with Christ in the scriptures, you'll discover the exact opposite. Often when people come to a relationship with God, often when people encounter Jesus Christ, even in the scriptures, their lives don't become easier. In fact, they become much harder and often they become much more difficult. And that is certainly true in the life of David. David was this innocent young shepherd boy who was just quietly and peacefully taking care of his sheep when one day the prophet Samuel comes and anoints him to be the next king. 
He instantly grows in popularity. He experiences all sorts of military victories. And you get the sense that now is going to be the time for David to experience all the glory that he deserves as this good king. Now is the time for him to ascend to his throne and become the true king. But instead, the exact opposite happens. And David is cast into the wilderness. You see, Saul, who was the first king, the first king that was before David, was really a madman. He was a paranoid personality, and he was captured by fears. And all of his fears were centered around or focused on David himself, who he knew to be the next king. And he couldn't stand that that was true. So he sought to murder David and he forced David to flee into the desert, to flee into the wilderness just to save his own skin. So David runs into the wilderness. He flees from the temple courts. He flees from everything that he knew to be true. And he gathers himself a bunch of men, a bunch of misfits and outcasts. It says in 1 Samuel 22 that everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul ended up gathering around David, this refugee. He and his men fled to all sorts of foreign nations in order to seek refuge. They lived in caves. They fled to forests. They ran into wildernesses. And every time Saul pursued them from one place to another in order to kill David. David even has to hide his own family away. He has to squirrel them away in a refuge because he knows that if Saul gets his hands on his family, he will butcher and kill them because that is exactly what he was doing. Everybody who knew anything about David was being killed in Saul's path, in Saul's pursuit to find David. Eventually, the chase leads them to the wilderness of En Gedi, or a place that's called the Wild Goat's Rock. And it was a plateau that was near the Dead Sea in ancient Israel. And David and his men have to, to run into and, and hide in caves, these little crags and refuges in the midst of a huge rock place, in the midst of an incredible, inhospitable land. So David and his 400 men are are hiding away in these caves when Saul brings 3,000 soldiers to come and to intercept David and to kill him. David in every way is outmatched, in every way is trapped and in a terrible place. But ultimately what you find is that in this wilderness setting, in this place, something incredibly significant happens. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this text, but I think there is really something to say about the idea of wilderness all throughout the scriptures. Eugene Peterson writes a lot about this in his writing, and he talks about wilderness periods that you and I feel from time to time in our lives. He calls them not geographical wildernesses, but he calls them circumstantial wildernesses that you and I face from time to time. He writes this. He said, everything is going along fine in our lives. We've learned the language of the country. We've gotten a job. We've decorated the house. We've signed up for car payments. We've made out a schedule that imposes order on the chaos of time. 
We've accepted responsibilities that define our significance. We've heard people speak our name and determined that we are identifiable. And then suddenly we are beside ourselves. We don't know what's going, going on within us or in another who is important to us. Feelings erupt in us that call into question what we've never questioned before. There's a radical change in our bodies or our emotions or our thinking or our friends or our jobs, and we're out of control. We are in the wilderness. You know, the truth is, all of us, if we reflect on our lives, know that we have been in that place before. Some of you may be sitting here this morning and feel like you are in the middle of a wilderness period in your life right now. But there is very good news if that is you, because God often shows up in the wilderness. Some people believe that, they, that David needed to be in this wilderness period. He needed to go through this wilderness period before he could become the true king. After all, Moses had to spend 40 years in the wilderness before he could lead God's people out in the exodus. Jacob had to spend a large portion of his life in hiding before he could be the father of a great nation. And even Jesus himself was cast into the wilderness for 40 days before he started his public ministry. You see, from time to time, God has to drive his people into circumstantial wilderness. But the good news is that we serve a God who is faithful. And he works often in our hearts and lives in very powerful ways in those moments. He prepares us. He shapes us. He molds us. Because often very significant things happen to us in the wilderness. Now one would think for David after this encounter, everything would be fixed. After this significant event that happens to him in the wilderness, everything's going to be fixed and everything's going to go back to normal. But exactly the opposite is true. That even after this story, David has to remain in the wilderness for a season of his life. Both Psalm 57 and Psalm 142 are both believed to have been written while David was in this wilderness period. And if you read those Psalms, you see this incredible internal struggle, this up and down struggle that David has, wondering what God is doing and why he is doing it. But what they do reveal is what David did in his heart when he was in this wilderness period. Because Psalm 57 starts out with these words, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I take refuge. You see, David just didn't take refuge in the wilderness, but he fled to God and he took refuge in his relationship with him. Because even David recognized that significant things often happen in the wilderness. Now, I, like you, can probably look back at certain points in your life that sometimes when we think about them in the backwards format, we recognize they were wilderness times in our lives. But I'm willing to bet, if you're like me, that you can look back at those periods and say they were the most incredibly formative experiences of your life. 
Maybe not experiences you'd want to go through again or wish on anybody else, but you know that they did something inside your heart and soul that nothing else could have done in your life. See, what's so remarkable about this passage is not just that significant things happen in the wilderness, but also what David did in response. What happened in his heart when he was in the wilderness. Because what we see out of David in this period of his life is that he exhibits two things. He exhibits an an, an untold obedience to God, but also an unconventional grace. See, the story tells us that David is is hiding in this cave. And Saul's army, his army of 3,000, had had surrounded David while he was hiding in his cave. They'd amassed around him, and David was outnumbered and trapped. And the scriptures tell us that, that Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. He was sitting on another throne of sorts. Um, and uh, sorry about that, I just had to. Uh, he was sitting on another throne of sorts, relieving himself. But unbeknownst to him, David and his men are in the back of the cave, in a hidden part in the back of the cave. David must have been thinking in his own heart, now is my chance to kill Saul. Now is the opportunity to exact revenge for all of Saul's brutality. Now is my chance to end this wilderness period of my life and ascend to the throne that is rightfully mine. Now is my chance to save my own life and save the lives of the men who are with me as well. But the passage tells us that David crept up from the very back of the cave And instead of killing Saul, what he did is he took Saul's robe and he cut off a small portion of his robe and then he stole back to rejoin his men in the rear of the cave. You know, conventional wisdom would tell us that this was David's chance. In fact, it was probably his only chance and that's what his men were urging him to do, take this chance, but he didn't. And he didn't really for two reasons. The first is that he was motivated by an obedience to God. It says in verse 6 that David says to his men, he says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to the Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. See, David, more than anybody else, most certainly would have recognized that Saul was an evil man. He, like no one else, had felt the pain of brutality and jealousy. He recognized that the the throne that Saul sat on was his own throne, a throne that was rightfully his. He recognized that Saul was the very reason that he was in the wilderness. But most importantly, he recognized above all those other things that Saul was God's anointed. He recognized that God's purpose was that David was actually in this situation. It was God's purpose and that Saul was actually the anointed one. You see, he recognized that nothing was happening in his life that was outside of God's control. You know, the reality is sometimes you and I want to circumvent God's purposes when we are in the wilderness. We want to use conventional wisdom to escape those difficult periods of our lives. 
But sometimes godly wisdom and obedience helps our eyes to be opened in those moments to see that they are part of God's sovereign hand and God's purpose in our lives. You see, David in obedience would would not strike the king whom God had anointed. He was passionate for God. He was passionate for God's law and he refused to take the easy way out. You see, often obedience to God's will is very different than conventional wisdom. But because David took the hard way, because he was obedient, then he was presented with another opportunity in this situation. He was presented with an opportunity to exhibit unconventional grace. You see, David was a victim of gross injustice at the hands of a madman. No doubt he had felt the right of revenge. No one would have blamed him for killing Saul in this moment. In fact, most people would have celebrated him as a hero for killing Saul, but instead he chose to exhibit unconventional grace. He spared Saul when he didn't deserve it. He did not return an eye for an eye. He did not respond to the injustice that he was victim to. Instead, he spared Saul knowing full well that he would have to absorb the cost for it. You see, anytime we exhibit grace or grace is exhibited, a cost has to be absorbed. You see, by not killing Saul, his ascent to the throne would be delayed. He would have to remain in hiding. He would have to continue to defer what was rightly his. David absorbed the cost And he exhibited unconventional grace. But our story doesn't end there. Our story tells us how Saul responded to this unconventional grace. You see, once Saul finishes up his business in the cave, he then leaves the cave and David allows him to get a certain distance away from the cave before David emerges. And he calls out to Saul and he shows him the corner of his robe. He demonstrates to Saul that that he spared his very own life. And then the scriptures say this, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. You see, when Saul was confronted with David's grace, this unconventional grace, even this madman was overcome by David's grace. He lifts up his voice. He wails. He he begins to cry uncontrollably because even he recognizes that David is righteous and that he has been evil. But he even takes it one step further in his response. Because David's response is so remarkable to Saul that Saul even goes a step further. He even recognizes that David is actually the rightful king. He says in verse 19, So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king 
and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. You know, as we've looked at the life of David, we've, we've seen his ups and downs, and we'll continue to see his ups and downs. But we continue to see him as this remarkable character who often would do things in situations that we would never think to do for ourselves. We see an incredible passion for God in him, and we see an incredible obedience and faithfulness to God in his life as well. And we recognize that when the time comes for him to ascend the throne, he will be a great king. But to just stop there would actually do violence to the scriptures. Because the scriptures do want us to see David as a great king but they ultimately want to point us to an even greater king. They want to point us to the greatest king that we have in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was the great king who, like David, exhibited an incredible act of unconventional grace. See, the scriptures tell us that in sin, humanity rebelled against God. That every one of us have sought to usurp his authority. We've sought to become our own kings or even to become our own gods. And daily we rebel against him in our thoughts and in our actions and in our deeds. The scriptures tell us that God had every right and he has every right to punish us for our rebellion. He has every right to repay our evil with swift and exact justice and punishment. But instead, the gospel tells us, God chose to exhibit unconventional grace. He sent his very own son, Jesus Christ, to be the true king. But that king would be cast out of the city gates into the wilderness to be crucified. He would become a victim of gross injustice. He would become the righteous one who would be punished as the evil one. He was the anointed one, but the one who was anointed to sacrifice himself. Because the gospel story tells us that God himself reached out his hand against this anointed one. He was the Lord's anointed who would be stricken on our behalf. So the question then becomes for us, like it was for Saul that day. What will our response be to God's unconventional grace in our lives? Well, maybe like Saul, we should weep and despair over our own evil that exists in our own lives. But we ought not stay in that place. That weeping and that despair ought to give birth to something else. And that is marvel. That is the sense of being overcome by the grace of God in our lives. It ought to give birth to us recognizing him as the one and only true king. And it ought to send us out to cling to him in faith. Now, over the past couple years, I've had the privilege of, of um, 
going and serving downtown at the Helping Up Mission. If you've never had a chance to serve at the Helping Up Mission, I encourage you to, to seize the opportunity to do that. It's a, it's a wonderful place that, that cares for men who are recovering from uh, addiction and homelessness and all the issues that, that surround that. But every time I go to the Helping Up Mission, I'm always, I always walk away surprised. I shouldn't be, but I always walk away surprised because every time I serve there, I end up getting in a conversation with someone who looks a whole lot like me. Somebody who's been a, a banker or somebody who's been an uh, investment person or uh, someone who's uh, been a, uh, involved in a major corporation or been uh, in charge of some big sort of business whose life at one point was sent out into the wilderness because of an addiction that had captured their lives. And what never fails as I hear their story is that these men will say to me this. They'll say they would never trade the wilderness experience that they went through. Sure, they would trade the consequences. They wish they wouldn't have to live with some of the consequences that came from their wilderness period. But they said they would not trade that wilderness period in their lives. Why? Because when they were in that period of their lives, they experienced unconventional grace from the true King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, whether or not you and I realize it, all of us, apart from Christ, are in a spiritual wilderness. My prayer for all of us, my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that we would have our eyes opened to see the true King who exhibits unconventional grace.